Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast of La Trobe Asia, where we discuss the news, events and general happenings of Asia's states and societies. Joining me today is Andrew Phillips from the University of Queensland to talk about a book that he and Jason Charman have recently published that examines the Indian Ocean. The book is entitled International Order in Diversity, War, Trade and Rule in the Indian Ocean, published by Cambridge University Press. Andrew is an Associate Professor and Reader in International Relations and Strategy and an ARC DECRA Fellow at the University of Queensland. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks, Nick. Today we're going to be talking about the Indian Ocean region between the 15th and 19th centuries, often called the cradle of globalisation. This hugely important period and this enormously important region are almost entirely unstudied and undiscussed, both in academic circles and in the popular literature. Well, let's start with the basics of what the Indian Ocean region is, geographically what it's constituted of. When we talk about it, what are we referring to? Sure. Well, the interesting thing with the Indian Ocean is it's often been described as a Goldilocks Ocean, obviously larger than the Mediterranean and smaller than the forbidding expanses of the Atlantic and the Pacific. People talk about it as an embayed ocean, almost continuous littoral, going from the East African coast all the way up through the Persian Gulf into South Asia and then finally into Southeast Asia. And what's really interesting about it, and one of the reasons that my co-author and I, Jason Sharman, really were keen to study it, is that it is also, from late antiquity, been really a very central uh, location for intercontinental trading networks. And so it's partially because of that that we're really interested in studying it. Does it have sort of subsections? If we've got this great big coastline, as yeah. it were, from Africa all the way around to, to the Straits of Malacca, are there sub-elements that are sort of more connected than others? Yeah, there's always a certain artificiality in dividing things up. But generally, the four sub-regions that we focused on were East Africa, going up into the Persian Gulf, South Asia, and finally Southeast Asia. And what was really interesting about those regions is that you've got really an immense amount of cultural diversity. Because of the climatic regularity of the monsoonal winds, you had a capacity for seafarers to exploit those trading systems to be able to actually uh, circumnavigate the Indian Ocean. To give you one uh, local example, there is evidence on the uh, West Australian coast that there was actually trading activity between East Africans and Indigenous Australians going back to the late medieval period. So it gives you an indication really of the connectivity of the region but also the um, large-scale amount of long-distance trade that knitted this network and set of networks together. So you've got a kind of situation where a boat that can't go too far out to sea could actually hop its way around the coast in one context, and another is you've got a particular climatic condition of that circulation of wind and rain and weather that makes long-distance travel much more straightforward than it would be, say, across the Atlantic or across the Pacific. Exactly, and there's this really fascinating social ecology that develops around that. Because you've got this climatic regularity, you've, you've almost got a kind of a turntable effect within the region. But what that means is that the monsoonal winds blow one way, they take the ships in a certain direction. But if you're heading from East Africa to, say, the coast of Gujarat, you might end up there trading with the locals, but then you've got to wait for the monsoonal winds to reverse, for there to be a reversal of the season. In that time, you're resident in these incredibly cosmopolitan trading cities. That creates a kind of social system in a way where you've got a real kind of cross-fertilisation of peoples, of ideas, of cultures and of religions. Exactly, yeah. One of the fascinating things is if we look at one of the earliest expressions of this, typically in a lot of popular discourse we associate the spread of Islam from 7th century Arabia with uh, armed conquest. 
What's interesting in the Indian Ocean region is that it's essentially it's a religion of trade and that a lot of the connectivity that develops throughout this period is on the basis of Islam being an incredibly portable religion and being one that actually helps to enable the emergence of a form of basic trading law that starts to integrate large sections of the region. If you were to look at a map of the region now and sort of colour in green the bits where Islam is, it really is all the way around yeah. that literal from you know, Dar es Salaam in East Africa, yeah. whose name comes exactly from that, yeah. all the way around Aceh and almost all points in between. And what's interesting about that is that it's recognised <laughs> to such an extent by regional historians that the Indian Ocean has often been labelled an Islamic lake. So that kind of gives you precisely the kind of sense of what you're talking about. There we go. That's a, that's a thought to uh, get the conservative worry warts all fried up. That's the, right. The, the lake of Islam. There we go. In your book, the period you, you're really picking apart is this sort of 15th to the 19th century. So why start with the 15th century? What is it about that period that seems to kick off this creation of a kind of dense network of relationships? Well, what's really interesting is that uh, you know we talk in the West about the idea of the age of discovery. And we talk about that in the singular. But what's really interesting in the 15th century is that you've got pretty much Islamic, Chinese and European civilizational centres all expanding at that point. And the Indian Ocean, to a degree, becomes a point where all of these different forces converge. So you've got very famously the voyages of Admiral Zheng with these vast treasure fleets coming from China all the way into as far as East Africa. And what's interesting, a potential alternative history would be if China had maintained that long distance maritime exploration. Mm. They stop in the 1430s and then the baton is largely taken up by the Portuguese from December 1497 onwards. And then you've got going into the 1500s, the Ottomans also very briefly expanding their maritime ambitions in the Indian Ocean. So you've really got this interesting synchronicity there of these Islamic, Chinese and European ages of discovery happening to converge on the Indian Ocean. So you've got this 15th century sort of magic moment. During this period, what are the kind of principal features? You mentioned some of them of the Indian Ocean region. Obviously, trade's one element. But if we talk a bit about, I guess, the kind of vectors, you know, the forces that are bringing things sure. together, but also, I guess, what are, the, what are the big cities? Where are the big ports? Give us a sense of the main actors on the state. The main force that we look at, particularly from the 16th century onwards, is that this is a story that begins and ends with the centrality of India. India from 1526 is ruled by the Mughal Empire, imperialists that proudly claim their lineage from Genghis Khan and Tamerlane, come out of Central Asia, conquer large parts of northern India, and essentially establish an empire that dwarfs even the Ottomans in its wealth. And this is the power that is the superpower of the Indian Ocean mm. region. But what's really fascinating about it is that this is a superpower that is very deliberately focused on terrestrial conquest only. There's a phrase from the early Mughal emperors which is that wars at sea are merchants' affairs and are of no concern to the prestige of kings. Fairly clear cut. Exactly. And because they're such determined <laughs> landlubbers and have no interest at all in the idea of long-distance maritime conquest, it serendipitously creates a space for the Europeans, first the Portuguese and then later the Dutch and the English, to carve out their own space of influence within the region. You've also got the Spice Islands in what is now Indonesia. I mean, we go back to the 1500s, spices like cloves and cardamom, these are literally worth more than their weight in gold. They're extraordinarily valuable. They really justify the basis of European imperial expansion at the time. And so you've got this nodal network of trading cities 
all around East Africa, the Persian Gulf, South Asia and Southeast Asia. The locals are largely uninterested in maritime conquest. The Europeans, that's their comparative advantage. That's what they are really heavily into. But you've also got a very long established tradition in the region of what we call commercial extraterritoriality, which is a very fancy way of talking about the idea that you've got these cities in which Europeans and other traders, the Armenians are a good example of this as well, are basically allowed to rule themselves while maintaining trading activities. And it's really what this does is it carves out these tiny territorial toeholds throughout the region where organisations like the English East India Company can start to develop a presence that essentially becomes the incubator for European imperialism a couple of centuries down the track. So we know Europeans highly valued spices, Mm. literally more than their weight in gold. Were there multiple demands for spice, if you like? A lot of historians of food helped us in trying to understand the puzzles that were at work. You've got what they call regional taste cultures. And what they mean by that is that if you look at Chinese trade with Southeast Asia at the time, the Chinese are mad for sea slugs. That's something that they're very interested in. And that creates enormous wealth and trading opportunities for people that are willing to sell them those. They've got much less of an interest, though, in things like cinnamon, cardamom, cloves that Europeans enormously prize. So you've almost got this division of economic labour that develops at the time simply because different regions have different taste cultures. But it provides these incredible arbitrage opportunities for young, ambitious, cutthroat operators like the people that are operating in the East India Company to basically buy or steal low and then sell high in the markets back in Europe, such that people are willing to take the risks to engage in this long-distance trade. And the risks were huge. Between a third and a half of the ships of the East India Company never made their way back to Europe, either because they were shipwrecked or ended up becoming incorporated into more local Asian markets. So there's enormous risk, enormous incentives, though, at the same time to engage in this kind of trading activity. And I would imagine long kind of investment time horizons. I mean, you put your money on the table and you're not getting a return for literally years. Yeah, and this is the thing that's really fascinating is that not only is the Indian Ocean this um, real incubator of economic exchange at a transcontinental level, but it's an incredible catalyst for the kind of institutional innovations, things like the chartered companies that have basically formed the basis of corporate activity ever since. Initially, when the English were trying to engage in this long-distance trade, it was every merchant for themselves. And they realised that that was a really inefficient way of kind of pursuing this activity. So if we look at the East India Company, when it was established in 1600, this was very much on the basis of, this is such a risky activity, but such a potentially profitable one, that we will give one organisation a monopoly on this, enable people to pool patient capital, and establish an institution that can basically provide the institutional infrastructure for early modern globalisation. What we would think of as a just really modern way of thinking about business, taking risks, you know, leveraging capital, getting returns by saying there's this stuff, it's a long way away, it's over there in Asia. The returns are going to be enormous, but, and this is how we overcome that big but. Exactly. So we're going to return now to the question of little companies setting up their own city-states dotted around the Indian Ocean. So why did local authorities allow this? Why didn't they do what one might imagine would have done, which is say, if you want to come here, you pay us a license and you adhere to local customs and local laws and you pay tributes or whatever, taxes Mm. or whatever. But that was one of the really counterintuitive things that brought us to the project. 
there were instances where things went precisely as you describe. Uh, when the Europeans try to engage with the Mughal emperor, he's probably second in power only to the Chinese emperor in the world at that point, fiercely protective of any rights to maintain fortresses within his empire. And so he essentially says that to the Europeans, okay, if you want to trade here, we'll allow you to build what they call factories, which is essentially these trading stations, but you will be dependent upon locals for protection. But conversely, in other parts of Asia, and the classic example of this is Madras, which ends up being the first fortified city colony for the East India Company in Asia. What's interesting is that you've almost got uh, what we'd call today a public-private partnership where the local ruler said, okay, if I can get these Europeans to come in and to build a fortified trading entrepot, this will be basically a form of public infrastructure, if you like. If you build it, they will come. Mm. That it will attract merchants from all around. I'll be able to tax those merchants and I'll be able to basically outsource the costs of maintaining this infrastructure to these quarrelsome Europeans. So there's this really interesting kind of confluence of interests that actually makes these kinds of arrangements possible. So you've got this ruler in Madras who sees this activity going on and says, oh, here's a way I can get a slice of the action exactly. and have some side infrastructure benefits, so I get, but I have to do something to attract them to, yeah. to come. And the fascinating thing with that instance in particular is that if we look at Fort St. George, which is the first big imperial fortress that the East India Company sets up, the English are conned into building this fortress there is a set of arrangements that they make where they think that the costs of the fortress will be split between them and the local ruler. As soon as they build the local fortress, the bargain obsolesces, he goes back on his word, and congratulations, East India Company, you have your first very expensive fortress in Asia. So it starts in the 15th century, you've got this confluence of forces, and over time this develops. Do patterns emerge? Do things begin to change? Do we see differing things occurring from 16th, 17th, 18th? before we get to the end of it in the 19th century. Yeah, absolutely. There's a good century where the Portuguese pretty much have the field of themselves, at least from the European vantage point. And they pursue what is actually a disconcertingly modern maritime strategy of saying, well, if we look at this vast space that is the Indian Ocean, we can actually capture certain strategic points. So the Straits of Malacca that a lot of your listeners would be familiar with for its contemporary strategic purposes, this is something that they capture very early on conquer Malacca, they conquer bases at the Straits of Hormuz, they establish networks in southern Africa, all with this basis of saying we will lay claim to dominating maritime commerce within the region. So they're essentially um, a protection racket at sea. And this works for them for a good century. Then the English and the Dutch turn up. Essentially the 17th century is a story of Dutch naval dominance. Then finally you've got the English pretty much the inferior cousin to the Dutch for the 17th century, beginning to develop momentum in the 18th century. And what's really interesting and important about this process is that at least for the first 200 years, 1500 to 1700, European power is expanding at sea, but the great Islamic states, so the Ottomans in what is now Turkey, the Safavid dynasty in what is now Iran, the Mughals in what is now India, they're all expanding their territorial power as well. So you've got this really interesting, if you like, balance of power between very powerful Muslim empires at this time and increasingly powerful Europeans. You've painted a picture so far of this growing European competition, and we know by the end of the 19th century, India is part of the British Empire completely. British and European colonisation is 
take root profoundly in East Asia. What changes? Why does this sort of flywheel image come to an end? Essentially, the story from about 1750 (coughs) onwards is a shift from the Indian Ocean being an Islamic lake to it being a British lake. There are really two things that are going on. The first of those is the decline of local empires. India goes from being largely integrated under the Mughals to essentially this post-imperial hothouse of different actors competing against one another. At the same time that you've got that going on, you've got from the 1750s the globalisation of Anglo-French rivalry. And essentially you have an intersection of indigenous empires collapsing and European rivalries globalising you get this very ramshackle, very unplanned emergence of East India Company dominance within India. And that's essentially the story of where you get this shift from very cosmopolitan, eclectic, diverse environment to a period of increasing Anglo dominance that is consolidated very thoroughly by 1850. Double movement of local collapse, local weakness, and then this real acceleration by particularly Britain. So you go from having the string of pearls and this extraordinarily cosmopolitan array of geographically diverse political powers concentrated centrally, and the further you get from it, the sort of weaker political authority gets. Any sense as to what it was about these empires themselves that decayed? Empires really collapse so much as reconfigure. You've got a decentralisation of power as you've got much more powerful local actors. In the instance of the Mughals, there's a very strong sense within the literature that um, the last major big man within the organisation, the Emperor Aurangzeb, he was a religious extremist and he was interested in further territorial expansion and a commitment to a much more rigorous form of Sunni Islamic fundamentalism. Hard to pull off in a Hindu-majority empire, helped to accelerate decline as a result. To this day, he's hated by Hindu nationalists and held up as this figure to be uh, deeply reviled. So I think that was partially what drove it. But what's really interesting, and it offers a really interesting comparison with Europe, is that if we look at the mid to late 18th century, you don't yet have British power consolidated. You've got this incredible crazy quilt of different political actors that are operating. One of the most formidable figures at the time is Tipu Sultan, ruling in Mysore, who's essentially trying to build what looks like an absolutist sovereign state, trying to kick the Europeans out, align with the French tactically to push the British around. You've got two stories. You've got the original collapse of the Mughal Empire, but then you've got the Europeans just barely managing to beat out a lot of these successor absolutist states that develop within India. To finish up, why do we know so little about it? You and I both study international relations for a living, and yet for you and Jason, your co-author, this was in some respects, virgin territory. We don't teach our students this. And just in general, kind of popular understandings of the imperial past and how did the world become the way it is, this big dynamic place and period is literally off the radar. Why is that? Yeah, I think there's a couple of dynamics at work there. One is that I think both at the popular and at the academic level, most of us are really transfixed with the rise of China at the moment. But I think the other reason is that If we look at the way that we teach international relations, typically most of us, and I've been guilty of this as well, you start in 1945. Mm. Everything before 1945 seems like this inconveniently messy prologue to what comes after. Empires are untidy things. British India was composed of the areas the British ruled directly and no less than 600 princely states. It's a world that inherently makes very little sense to us. 
And it's one that we can all too easily dismiss as saying, well, that's prologue to the real international politics that begins after that point. But one of the points that we make in the book is in order to understand how weirdly uniform the international system is now, you've got about 190 plus sovereign states, and that is how we do international politics, you really need to get a sense of this earlier history of diversity and really need to get a sense of how different the world was in historically not that long a time ago. And how new it is to have a single kind of system. Exactly. That's all the time we have. The ideas we've been discussing are examined in depth in the book that Andrew Phillips and Jason Sharman have written entitled International Order in Diversity, War, Trade and Rule in the Indian Ocean, published by Cambridge University Press. You can follow Andrew on Twitter at aphillipsintrel, that's A-P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-I-N-D-R-E-L, or me at Nick Bisley. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it on iTunes and SoundCloud. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.